good morning, church family. How are you doing? Yes, worship was incredible, wasn't it? It was amazing. I hope while you're watching online that uh, you're having a great day as well and you felt the presence of the Lord there. I just love that, that the presence of God is not limited to a location. Amen? The presence of God is, is available at any moment that we choose to access it. And so today was fantastic. My son Jordan, by the way, played keys for the first two songs. It's amazing. He can play anything he wants, I think. Um, kind of gets that from me. <laughs> no. Um, Carrie and I went on a little trip this week, and we went diamond hunting, diamond mining. And um, I think it's the only diamond mining trip in the history of diamond mining that a family has actually gone to find diamonds, but actually lost diamonds, um, and then found them again. <laughs> so we um, lost uh, Carrie's wedding band, our 10-year anniversary band of diamonds. When we got home, we realized that she had placed them in her lap while she was moisturizing, and then we stopped at Bucky's. <laughs> Can I get an amen from anybody? And the rings, apparently, you know, the, the w wedding ring from her grandmother, um, we, we found it in the side of the door. So they flew from her lap to the side of the door, her grandmother's ring in the little cubby hole, and then a secondary ring that she really wanted. But then we couldn't find that anniversary band. So she was really sad when we got home Friday night. And I tried to, you know, lighten the mood by saying it's no big deal. Um, but it's a big deal. And then my son Tristan found the diamonds in a wadded up piece of trash after I had looked for it. So next time Carrie and I go diamond hunting, I'm taking Tristan along so that he can find diamonds that we didn't already have and lose. The second day we were there, we pulled up and we got there. It, it was a blast. If you want to do it, I encourage you to do it. It was fantastic. Great time. And we had this buggy that we rented in town because we tried a wheelbarrow first day, big mistake. But we took a buggy and we got into the parking lot and realized we had left our red gloves that go up to your elbows at the house we were staying, which was about 12 or 13 minutes away. And you just can't sift in water in the cold without those gloves. It was just not gonna happen. So I told Carrie, I said, Carrie, why don't you go on in, take, you know, pull the cart with all of our shovels and buckets and supplies and uh, sifters and go on in. I'll run back to the hotel and I'll get the gloves and I'll meet you here. And she was like, okay. So I was gone about maybe half an hour. By the time I make the 15 minute drive over, find the gloves, make it back. I'm walking onto the property. It's 36 acres of diamond fields. And I'm looking for my wife and I step onto the property and I think, how am I going to find her? And I'm walking the entry path, dirt, road and I notice the beanies on the ground. I bend down, I pick up the beanie and I'm like, that's my wife's beanie. So I pick it up, put it under my arm. I've got the red gloves. Now I've got the beanie, walk a little bit more. Then I find Werther's candy on the ground. I'm like, more than one person at this place likes Werther's candy. I'm going to pick that bad boy up for my wife. So I picked it up and walked a little bit longer and a P3 pack, a Lunchable laying on the ground. I pick up the launchable. I'll walk a little bit further and I find, it was like, I, I kid you not, it was like a Hansel and Gretel moment. She had left me breadcrumbs to find her 
at the diamond mine. I get, to, I'll come walking up and she says, oh, you brought my hat from the car, good. I'm like, no. I'm just collecting all the things that you dropped along the way and has sat there for the last half hour while all of these visitors, and the funny thing is a lady at the end of this line says, uh, ma'am, you dropped something. And Carrie turns around. Now, if you know my wife, she's an eight. She's very focused, very determined. When she's going to look for diamonds, that's all she cares about. <laughs> the lady says, oh, ma'am, you dropped something. And Carrie turns around and finds her big cube box of gum on the ground. She picks up the gum, looks around, doesn't see anything, puts it back and walks off, leaving a whole trail of things <laughs> that she left. We had a great time. Happy birthday, 50 years old, no small feet. Yeah. I'm married to a 50-year-old. I am three and a half years younger, so she's having to let me know what it feels like to be so mature. Listen, last week we talked about the family of God. And this week I want to go through the remainder of the sermons, kind of pivoting for a moment and talking about families. I'm a big family guy. Carrie's a big family woman. We love our family. Family is a priority. We have a, what I would call a successful family. We have a healthy family. Uh, that doesn't mean we have a family without bumps in the road, but we've navigated them. We're, you know, still standing. 26 years of marriage-ish. 26? A lot of years of marriage. And I want to talk about family. I'm going to talk about husbands. I'm going to talk about wives. I'm going to talk about moms, dads, children. And I'm also going to hit a topic in this series that is very dear to my heart right now in this season of life that I'm in. How to parent grown children. You don't hear that talked about a lot, um, but I'm, I'm praying that the Lord will give me wisdom and insight because listen, I'm, that's where I'm at right now. And I have to say, I believe that to be the hardest phase of parenting. I really do. So all of you with toddlers that are just wanting and can't wait to get out of that season, it only gets worse. Be blessed, leave your tithe in the door. So I want to I wanna see what God's word says about it because it's really difficult. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to let your kids grow up to let your young adults be adults and step into the destiny that God has for them, that's really difficult. And then what do you do when your young adult children aren't doing what you feel they should be doing to connect with God? How do you manage that without stepping into manipulation and control? This is really gonna be a good subject, but not for today. In a, in a week or two, I'm going to hit that. Probably closer to the end of March, I'll be talking on that. Um, the good news is that no matter what your status, married, single, divorced, divorced twice, divorced three times, widowed, no matter what your status, if you're an 18-year-old young man looking for a girl or a 26-year-old man looking for a girl, <laughs> this series is going to apply to you. You know why it's going to apply to you? I love you, Chad. You never know who's going to watch this online, man. They might just be like, hey, 
You know why this applies regardless of your status? Because I'm speaking the word of God. And today is not a self-help seminar. I'm not a motivational speaker. I hope that I don't demotivate you. But I am a teacher and preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I understand that the power is not in my preparation or my delivery. The power is right here. And there is nothing in here that, that can't transform your life. So I hope that you're not tuning out because you're single or divorced or bitter, or whatever. The Lord is going to transform our hearts during this series. I believe he's going to build something inside of you. I want to begin today by reading Ephesians 4. Now, if you know Ephesians 5, where it talks about, you know, husbands love your wives, women submit, all of this lovely stuff that when we take it in context makes a whole lot of sense. Ephesians 5 is known as the marriage chapter, but I want to back up to Ephesians 4 because this is the on-ramp to healthy relationships. And I want to paint a picture just by reading this to you today. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. It says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Father, I come before you today. I thank you for this word that you have set in my spirit. God, I ask that you would help me to communicate it effectively. I pray. God, that our hearts would be open, that the soil would be fertile in this moment to receive what you have for us. Regardless of what our families look like today, regardless of what our families look like yesterday, God, let your, let your pleasure rest among us. Let us feel inspired and encouraged in this moment. God, we ask that your word would come alive. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let the church say, amen. 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 All right, so my goal in Family Feels is to paint a picture of what a healthy family looks like. And that's exactly what I just read in Ephesians 4. It describes a lot of healthy behaviors, healthy interactions in a healthy relationship. But not just show you what a healthy family can look like. My goal is to take you by the hand and walk up to the mountain and find a place where you can see, if not today, at some point, that your family can be healthy. Your family doesn't have to stay stuck in the routines, in the dysfunction, in the unhealth that you're currently living. There can be a better tomorrow. And that's my goal. I, I do have to say... Um, before I get to talking about the healthy family, I have to talk about the broken family. The broken family 
is important to start with because we all came from a broken family. Every single one of us came from a broken, dysfunctional family. I know some of you are saying, well, I didn't. My family was, was awesome. But even if you came from a good family, a good Christian family, a good Christian family that pays tithe, a good Christian family that pays tithe and serves, that, that speaks faith daily, that prays over not just their meals and bedtime, but over other things, a, a good Christian family that doesn't raise their voice in the home. It's like watching Leave It to Beaver 24-7. Even those good Christian families are broken. Why? Because every family came from Adam and Eve. We all came from the first broken family, Adam and Eve. God put Adam and Eve on this earth, and when they fell, there was something about that transaction that then transferred in the DNA from generation to generation to generation. You and I, it's not hard to understand that we have biological DNA from Adam and Eve, right? That makes sense. You have two legs and two arms and two eyes, and that's how God fashioned Adam and Eve. And because of that, our DNA is encoded to produce those exact same things. We can understand that we get physical DNA from Adam and Eve. I want to take it a step further to say that we have encoded spiritual DNA that is transferred from Adam to Eve. That's right. Every family starts out broken. So what are the three results of the fall? What I want to do is dig into Genesis chapter 3. We read the New Testament, Ephesians 4. I painted a a nice little picture. I want to take you uh, to Genesis 3 where we see the breakdown of the first family. And we're going to pick it apart and we're going to... um, We're going to extrapolate three things from this story that has transferred down from generation to generation to generation to generation. How many of you would like to see the three things that Adam and Eve started in the garden with their brokenness that is at work in families today? Anybody? Okay. I'll tell you, as long as you make a promise to me, that as we talk about these things, you stay focused on your own heart, not your spouse's heart, not your mom's heart, your father's heart, your kid's heart. This isn't a sermon to fix everyone around you. This is a sermon to fix you, to help you. The other promise I need you to make is that this cannot be allowed to be a trigger for you. Make the determination right now that the things that I share and talk about, that you won't allow it to be a trigger to spiral down into resentment, anger, frustration and bitterness, but you will use it as an opportunity to say, aha, that's how the enemy has been at work in my family. And now that I see him, I got him. You with me? I'm in Texas. That's all right, right? (laughs) All right. The three things that happened in the fall that impact us today, consider Genesis 3 even though there were only two people that were ever created, two people alive on planet earth in the beginning, every person on the earth before the fall, even though there were only two, think about this, every person on the earth was in relationship with each other and with God. 
the relationship was healthy with every person on earth between each other and God. And in a matter of a few verses, every person on planet earth was in a broken relationship with each other and with God. That seems pretty significant, a global shift, if you will. Don't, don't minimize the number two because it was 100% of the population. 100% of the population went from being healthy to being broken. So turn with me. I hope you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter three. We're gonna read a lot and just walk through it today. I have some great revelations that I wanna share with you. Genesis chapter three, verse one. When you're there, say there. Okay. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? So stop here and take note that the very first thing Satan ever did to get someone to sin was to simply cast doubt on what the word of God had said. Just doubt, just a question. Did God really say to marry that person? Did God really say to have this many kids? Did God really say to take this job just to cast a little bit of doubt? You know, when you made that decision, you were all in and you knew that you had heard from God and then it got a little bit tough and the doubt started to creep in. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, we go from casting doubt to now absolutely contradicting the word of God. Do you see that? The enemy cast out a little bit of doubt she repeats what the Lord, Lord said, and then the enemy comes back around and, and gives a complete misrepresentation of what God said. Verse five, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. This is Satan talking in the form of a serpent. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, now get ready, because I'm about to show you three things that the woman saw. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. These are the three things that seduced her into doing what the Lord had told her not to do. She also gave to her husband with her, with her. In other words, Adam wasn't, you know, he wasn't out hunting, trying to care for the family. He wasn't out doing something good. He was standing right next to Eve while the enemy was deceiving her. And he said nothing. Now, if I see Adam in heaven, I'm going to suggest that that probably wasn't a moment to keep silent. He was with her and he ate. So she saw three things. All right. Do, do you remember? The tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Now, listen, I want to jump out of Genesis for a moment because I want to show you the beauty and the continuity of Scripture. This is so exciting. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John is writing, and he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then what does he say? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. 
for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want you to lock that in your memory, just short-term memory momentarily. What are the three things that are in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not the father, but of this world. Okay, jump back to Genesis chapter three. Let's compare the three things that Eve saw, the woman saw. She saw the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. This is verse six, verse six. Pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Then she saw it was desirable to make one wise. What was the third thing? The pride of life. Do you see how those three things that started in Genesis 3 has gone through the entire uh, scripture to show us that these things aren't going away? Even if you think you've mastered them all, I'm here to tell you they're not going away. So Satan doesn't have any new tricks, church. I know you think he's creative, but he's not the father of creativity. He is so redundant. You know why he gets you down sometimes? He just wears you out by doing the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. He, he doesn't have a new trap set up for you. He has the same trap that you conquered set a hundred times in hopes that you get too tired of stepping over it. So what is the first thing? The first thing that we have to deal with as the result of a broken family, and we see this in broken families all over the world. We've seen it in our own family. It is shame, shame. Write that down somewhere in your notes. The first thing is shame. We're gonna see that as we continue reading Genesis chapter three. We're gonna start in verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You see that shame? That's shame. They saw that they were naked and they made for themselves a covering out of fig leaves. Now, here they made their own covering, but in verse 21, you're gonna see, uh, if you read it later on your own, that God eventually realized, he, God realizes their covering is not sufficient. So God has to come and sew their own clothes out of animal skin. It says that God makes for them clothes out of skins. Now, this is, this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. Can we get a little geeky for a moment with scripture? Okay. Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. What does the fig tree represent? Israel. <laughs> Israel. So they took fig leaves, Israel, religion, the law, and tried to cover their own shame. But God knew that it was not sufficient. So he had to sacrifice an animal and use its skin to cover their shame. Now, the Bible doesn't say what that animal is, but my educated guess would be that it was a lamb. That a lamb had to be slain to cover their shame. You see, shame in our families, it, it can't be covered by religion it can't be covered by right living. It can't be covered by justification, justifying our actions. It can't be covered by anything but the blood of Jesus. And thankfully, God provided that. He provided a covering himself. Let's keep reading verse eight. Isn't this good? Is this good? Is this as good to you as it is to me? 
verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. Shame will always cause you to hide yourself, to not be vulnerable, to not share what you're going through. That's what they did. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because, underline that in your Bible, I was afraid because. Why was Adam afraid? He was afraid because of shame. Shame produced fear. Fear is not produced contrary to popular demand or opinion. It is not produced by lack of confidence. Fear is produced by shame. That's why the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. It is perfect love that lifts the shame off of us when we understand just how deeply we are loved by him. That understanding will remove the shame. But Adam was afraid because he was naked and he hid himself. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? God asked Adam, who told you you were naked? I know the answer to that. No one. No one had to tell Adam that he was naked. It was obvious. Once brokenness entered onto the scene, Adam understood there was this instant realization of shame when sin came into the world. Shame is a a natural byproduct of sin. Nobody had to you know, I don't, the hyenas, were they laughing? I don't know. Were the monkeys pointing? I don't, I don't know. There was no one else there but Adam and Eve. And the, the odd thing is they had both already seen each other's nakedness. So who were they hiding from? Were they hiding from each other? Were they hiding from God? Who created them? Who knew? Knew what they looked like before the leaves? Who, who were they hiding from? You see, shame will always cause us to hide from God and each other and ourselves. It's easier to hide than to look down and see that you're naked. This is beyond healthy modesty. Okay, this is devastating shame that we're talking about that Adam and Eve felt. When I was in my 20s, late teens, early 20s, I, there's a picture of Micah. I was 20, 21 in, in the military, and Carrie brought Micah to the beach. We met at the beach or went to the beach, and I have Micah on my shoulders, and it's just this skinny little kid there, me. Like, when I was in my 20s, I could not gain weight. I could not, I was skinny. I could not gain muscle. I don't have, you know, I couldn't gain weight then. I don't have that problem now. The Lord has, has healed me of that. But I, I remember, you know, at that age, I didn't really want to get changed in front of people because I was just like diary of a wimpy man, you know, just a stick figure. Honestly, that's how I felt. That's how I perceived myself at that age. Now I don't want to change in front of anybody because I'm the opposite. I got four love handles, y'all. I did not know your chest can grow love handles. One day I looked in the mirror. I said, what is this? (laughs) 
So modesty is one thing. I'm talking about this deep need to cover because of shame, not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy. Where am I at? This is beyond healthy modesty and devastating shame. God's goal, by the way, is not to expose us, but to cover us. Can I just, can I just give you that bit of relief today? He, he is never out to expose you, to expose your sin, to expose your doubt, to expose your mental illness, to expose any of that. He's not out to expose you. He is always out to cover you. Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. His desire is to clothe you. Another example is Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Righteousness. There is a difference, by the way, between righteousness and right living. Righteousness is what we receive when we say yes to Jesus. You remember Abraham believed on God and it was accredited to his account righteousness. I get righteousness when I say yes to Jesus. That is what removes shame. Understanding it's not based on my right living. Yet so many of us in the room and watching online, we're trying to disable shame in our life by doing right, living right, doing the next right thing. But right living doesn't disable shame. Righteousness does. Genesis, let's read, let's move on, verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, by the way, Adam is about to blame, it's, it's a two for one. He's about to blame two people with one comment. You ready? He's really talented. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived me and I ate. All right, if the first thing that transfers down is shame, here's the next one. Blame. The blame game is a natural response for all of humans. It's not just the American way of living. It's not just your family. It's not just the people at work. Like blame is constantly encoded in our natural response. And we have to hand that over, surrender that over to the Lord to step out of the blame game. I, I tell my kids all the time, I don't like when you do things wrong, but it makes me even more mad when you don't take ownership of it. Just own it. Because you can't change what you don't own. Blame. Most of the time, people will say, it's not my fault. Like, it's never their fault. Never their fault. Never. But the other extreme is the people that say it's always their fault. And both of those are not correct. It's not always your fault, and it's not never your fault. 
It's amazing how many live in bitterness toward others and God, and that's exactly what Adam did. It's her fault. It's God's fault. Don't we do that? It's my boss's, boss's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It's the government's fault. It's, it's God's fault. God, where are you? Why have you not avenged me yet? Why have you not shown my enemies that I'm your child? We, we allow bitterness to take root towards others and to God. But listen, we have to stop casting blame. Do you know where blame came from? Directly from Satan. Another word for blaming others, this might ring a bell to you. It's called being an accuser. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you before God day and night. The Bible says, Revelation 12, Satan is accusing you before God day and night. Now, I don't want to be the one that points a finger at you and starts to cast blame and accuse you. Because what I've come to realize is when I blame other people, I have drawn the line in the sand and picked my team. I'm on the payroll for the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. The brethren, people that we're going to see and live with forever. Even if the person isn't saying, I know some of you are saying, but my boss needs Jesus. I can blame him all day. He's a pre-brethren. Where is your faith? God loves your boss. He was created in the image of God. We have to stop blaming others. The first is shame. The second is blame. Let's get to the third because I am out of time. Yes, I had to make it rhyme. Fame. Fame. This isn't wanting to be famous. It's not wanting your name in lights. That's not the kind of fame that I'm referring to that's transferred down generationally. It's wanting to be recognized. Wanting to be acknowledged. It's the insecurity that drives our need for recognition. That's, that's the fame that travels from generation to generation. It is this deep seated, very dysfunctional, very unhealthy need for others to lift you up, for others to validate you, for others to say thank you to you, for others to appreciate you, for others to honor you. Are you, are you following me? There's nothing wrong with giving appreciation. We should, we should all be appreciative. There's nothing wrong with giving honor. We should all live a life of honor. The problem becomes when we elevate our expectation to demand it from someone else. I am entitled to nothing and blessed by everything. The enemy wants us to focus on how we can be recognized. And I want to take you to that verse. But before I do, let me just say, we, we just finished with verse 12. In verse 13, or sorry, we've ended with verse 13. In verses 14 and 15, God announces the curse that came on the serpent because of the disobedience. In verse 16, God announces the curse that came on Eve because of disobedience. In verses 17, 18, and 19, God announces the curse that came on Adam for disobedience. And just a side note, God did not curse them. He was just explaining the door they chose. 
You remember before they sinned, God said, if you do this, you will surely die. So he was explaining how death is going to be outworked in their life by choosing curses rather than choosing life. That's what's happening in those verses. Now I want to read to you where fame surfaces its head in verse 20. And Adam called his wife, he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So it was after the fall that Adam names his wife Eve, right? It sounds noble and it sounds kind. Oh, she's the mother of all living things, right? It sounds good. It sounds kind. Um, but this is happening after the fall. Adam names the woman Eve. He gives her, in essence, a title and a job description. Mother of all living things. Your job is to produce for me. Now, there's nothing wrong at all with being a mom. I celebrate moms. I, I think moms are the greatest humans on planet earth. Being a mom is a great thing, but being a mom is not your highest purpose and calling. And I know that may offend you. Feel free to email me at Cheryl at the exchange church dot org. Being, being a mom is not your highest purpose and calling. Being a father is not your highest purpose and calling. It's not even your highest purpose and calling to be a wife or a husband. Your highest purpose and calling is to be a child, to be a son, to be a daughter, because when you get that right, all the other things line up. So what appears to be a statement of honor from Adam is, is really a statement of independence rather than a statement of interdependence. I, let me prove that to you real quick. I know I'm running over, but could I have three more minutes? Okay, this is, this is my favorite part of the sermon. Stay with me. In Genesis 2, just a chapter before, before the fall, Genesis 2, verse 23, Adam said, this is how he describes Eve, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He says in chapter two, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Eve got her name Eve after the fall. Prior to the fall, what was her name? Good question, eh? The answer is in Genesis chapter five, verse two. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name. We have this verse, let's put it up so we can read along. Genesis five, two, called their name Adam. Adam, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. When God walked in the garden looking for them, he didn't say, Adam and Eve. He said, Adam, where are you? And expected two humans to respond to Adam. You see, Adam doesn't mean man. Adam means mankind. Some of your translations will say, God, God called them mankind. 
But if you go to the, the real original, their name was Adam. So after the fall, when brokenness became on the table, Adam separated her name from his. And in we see division, labeling, separation, the competition that is brewing. We can see it and it's lived on today. Male versus female, person against person. Did Adam give Eve the name Eve to honor her? Or did he give Eve the name Eve so that he could keep the name that God gave? And then it goes to our kids because our kids want to be noticed and appreciated and valued. And we go to chapter four, we see that Abel and Cain gave an offering. One of them didn't like the turnout and it resulted in murder between brothers all because fame. Because the first broken family was so consumed with making their own individual name great rather than being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The the enemy is crafty, isn't he? Here's the irony of fame and appreciation and attention. Here's the dilemma. Satan came to Adam and Eve and said, you will be like God if you eat of this tree. Remember that? They were already like God. They were created in his image. They didn't need to chase after more being like God. They they were like God. Do you see the double-mindedness of desiring what you already have and what you already are? It's ridiculous. You would think it would be ridiculous if you heard me walking around, I just want to be married. Trey, you are married. Why are you desiring it? I just want to be like God. You are like God. You were created in his image and you are lovely and you are beautiful and he has extended his grace to you. You look just like him. Broken families carry shame, blame and fame. And the only answer, the only answer is the blood of the lamb that covers us all. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, God, I thank you that you're doing a work in our families. You're doing a work in our identity You're doing the work in our understanding of who you've called us to be. God, I ask that, God, we would say yes to this opportunity for our families to be families that flourish, for our families to be families that are growing, that are impacting, changing culture, shifting atmospheres, doing the will of the Father. God, I thank you. I thank you for the power that is in family that you created. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen, amen. If you're ready to say yes to Jesus, 
and you want to know what's next, where to go next, what to do, I'm going to ask you to text NEXT, N-E-X-T, to 512-980-1220. You'll get a reply text. We want to help you uh, say yes to Jesus and develop in your spiritual walk. We love you guys. God bless you.